At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Good morning. It was five weeks ago this evening. We had just gotten the kids settled down into bed. And we, uh, it, it was actually a busy Sunday. It was Mother's Day, if you remember, which can sometimes be crazy around here. And then just all the normal Mother's Day stuff that happens. And I uh, sat at one end of our family room. I, I went to tidy up my desk a little bit. And Allie sat nearby on the love seat. And she interrupted about half an hour later. She interrupted our silence and she said, hey, it's time. We got to get ready for an appointment. It's actually a video call. And she sensed a little hesitation on my part because I don't like surprises. It's hard to surprise me. Please don't take that as a personal challenge, by the way. Uh, (laughs) And she said, just relax and sit down next to me. You're going to like it. You're going to like these people. And so she brought up Zoom on her iPad and I was delighted to join a video call that she had put together and surprise, surprise me with in uh, honor of my 40th birthday, which was going to be two days later. And so I shared this on social media, this picture that you'll see. I share this, but for 90 minutes, uh, I was delighted to see some of my closest friends and those who had made an indelible mark on my life. And they heaped on words of affirmation and love and and challenge, and for those 90 minutes, we shared, we laughed, I was the one who was crying, but it was beautiful. As a words of affirmation people, person, it was a beautiful reminder of uh, love from friends, and certainly my sweet wife and my heavenly father. I just took it as such a gift, the best birthday gift ever. And I've been reflecting in the last few weeks on our time on that call, and how some of these people were with us through the high moments of our life. I mean, they stood beside me as I made my vows to marry Allie. They showed up at the hospital to hold our little babies, or they brought us meals after the fact. They prayed for us in the midst of those crazy newborn weeks. We took trips together. We've made memories together Some of them, actually three of them, are bosses or former bosses. And so they have poured into me, actually four of them, uh, they've poured into me both personally and professionally and gave me mentoring and coaching. Such a beautiful gift. But you know, I've also reflected that it's not just been the high stuff. It's been the low valleys of life as well. And uh, before we moved here to Michigan, when we lived in Ohio, Some of them walked with us through Allie's journey of cancer shortly after we were married. They walked alongside us through treatment. And they upheld our arms when when they were failing. They upheld us in prayer. And us to them as well. Some of them lost babies. Some of them faced infertility. Others struggled with the gift of singleness and the Lord's timing for that. One of them has lost a parent to suicide and another recently to COVID. And one of them, two of them, have struggled with mental illness and were brave enough to open up about it and to share that. 
And so on that call, though it was delightful, and though they're wonderful people, it wasn't, it wasn't so wonderful because of like, hey, they're fun people, fun people to, to share a, a fun adventure with. No, it's because we've walked through some stuff together, some hurt, some pain, some sorrow. We've cried, we've grieved, we've lamented together. And lament is what we're working through in this Good Morning series where we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Lamentations, written many, many, many years ago. And as we've studied this book these last few weeks, we've been given uncomfortable access to the devastation of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., when the Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar invaded and destroyed and carried off into exile God's people, the people of Judah. And through the five chapters of this poem that perhaps were written by the prophet Jeremiah, never quite identified, but there are a lot of reasons why it may match up with Jeremiah, we've discovered a powerful and important spiritual discipline that today we are frankly uncomfortable with. We're unfamiliar with it. It's this practice of lamenting. In case you're new with us this morning, we've defined lament as expressing grief to God. So in an honest way, we're just being flat out honest with God about how our situation is, and we're choosing to trust him in the middle of our sorrow. Now, those dear friends on the Zoom call that night were so influential and helpful to me for many reasons, but one of them was in helping me to learn and to understand because I had not personally experienced what they had. My story was not their story. Their story was not entirely my story. But I needed them. I needed what they've walked through for me to grow in my understanding and my compassion and my capacity and my ability to lament with them. And this morning, we'll learn that lament is the means to weep with those who weep. That phrase, weep with those who weep, is a reference to Romans 12, where the Apostle Paul is describing the marks of a true or genuine disciple. What he's explaining is that there are some characteristics or some marks, namely love and compassion, among some others, that are present in God's people, that we can enter into people's joy along with them and not be jealous of them. And we can also come alongside and we can grieve with them. We can feel the pain with them. And I'm going to read just a few of these verses in the second half of Romans 12. It may be familiar to some of you. I'll put it up on the screen for us. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, Paul is not heaping on a whole bunch of new commands, all these new hoops that they've got to jump through. No, he's actually pointing out these are the things that should be present in God's people. As you experience the gifts of grace, which he would have explained a few verses before in Romans 12, read it on your own time. As you experience those gifts of grace, as God changes you, this is just what naturally flows out of God's people in community with one another. 
And I'm reminded as I read those verses that those are the actions, the attributes of the way that Jesus lived when he was on earth. You see, his love was genuine. He kept himself and abhorred evil, sin. He loved people. He honored them, especially those that culture or society deemed less honorable or marginalized. He showed them greater honor. He was patient. He experienced tribulation. He knew how to rejoice, and he certainly knew how to weep. That, my friends, is the way of Jesus. Now, I'm not preaching from Romans 12. We're in Lamentations in our Good Morning series. This is part four. So I'm going to ask you to make your way now to, to Lamentations 3. If you're using a Bible that's nearby you, a seat in front of you, it's page 688, if you want to join us there. It's kind of hard to find Lamentation. And we're finishing chapter 3, which Pastor Jacob began last week. And he explained this turning point that happens when we can acknowledge, we can own the crap that happens in life. We can own that before God. And as we turn to him, we actually find that we receive the deepest satisfaction of our souls, and it's God himself. That's the hope that emerges as we lament. Now, there is a lot of good stuff in Lamentations chapter 3. Enough for like five sermons, which we don't have time for this morning. So lest you be concerned that we're already this far in, we've looked at Romans, and now we're starting 41 verses of Lamentation. Let me, let me just, it's okay, take a deep breath. I'm going to group some verses together. We're going to jump around a little bit in our time together. And um, I would encourage you, read all of chapter 3 on your own time, because there's some really good, rich stuff in there. And so I'm going to, I began though in Romans because I, I thought it was really helpful to be reminded of the way of Jesus, to be reminded of what was true about his life. That's actually how the author, the poet here in Lamentations begins. He begins with what is true. We remember what's true about God. We remember his heart. Now, here's a little insight into me. I'm an internal processor. I'm married to an external processor. I work for an external processor. That's a sermon for another time. But for me, I'm internal. And so if you're catching me on, in a conversation, I got to figure some stuff out first in my brain before it comes out of my mouth. Right, Allie? Where she'll just talk and talk and talk and talk and we'll arrive there. Well, I'm a, like quiet and figure it out. And, I, and it's kind of the same way in how I respond to difficulty and to challenges. I've got to work it out in my mind. So I appreciate that the poet begins with the same approach. He begins with what is true before he moves into a posture of action. And that's actually how I studied the last week or so. I started with this list of all the things. What, are, what is true about God? And I jotted those down. And then this sheet says what to do. So what is true and what to do, and that is the model that we will follow as we walk through Lamentations 3, because that's just how I, that's how I work. So it starts in Lamentations 3.25. Join me there when he writes, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So right off the bat, what is true? The Lord is good. Now, I don't know about you, but this time of year, I am giddy with excitement because my vegetable plants are growing and they have blossoms on them and the flowers are blooming and the earth is just coming alive. It's thriving, it's growing, it's green, it's beautiful. And God is good to us to give us 
creation. He's so good that there's color and vibrancy and, and fragrance and beauty and variety in my flower garden. I recognize his goodness through nature. Now, for me, it was on that Zoom call, but maybe for you, it's not on a Zoom call, but God is good to give us relationships, people. And I wonder, do you have people, or even just if it's one person in your life who knows you, who loves you, who sees you, who values you, that's a good gift. God gives us gifts through other people. It's good that we have each other. For those of us who are saved, we're born again, we've looked to what Jesus did on our behalf, we have joy and peace that we're forgiven, and despite the sin that still exists of how we respond to people, how we respond to God, we're declared righteous, and that is good news. So when we see that the lamenting writer acknowledges the Lord's goodness, we ought to also begin there. We should agree with the truth of his character, And then that moves us into a place of action. Look at the rest of 25. It's good to those who wait. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So that word wait there is not passive. It's not just like, hey, I'm on hold waiting for them to pick up or I got to renew my license and I'm in this eternal line waiting to get to the front and for my number to be called. No, that's not the kind of wait what he's talking about here in the Hebrew is this hopeful, fervent, active waiting. We press on. We seek him. We're not seeking just an end to our problems. This is not just the easy button that we hit. We're seeking him. Remember, Pastor Jacob talked to us. We have satisfaction in our souls because we seek him. And so what does it look like to seek the Lord? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to talk about that. For me, it's before 6 a.m. in my family room, alone, with my study Bible, my journal, and my pen. Most mornings, that's, that's what it looks like. There's other rhythms, other things I do as well, but that's what it is, and, and I'm alone and I'm quiet because I'm just trying to shut up for once and learn to actually hear God's voice. I know how it affects me and my view of him and my view of the world. I'm trying to tune my heart and my spirit to be in pitch. If you're a musical person, we want to tune our lives so that we're in pitch with God's spirit. I also actively seek him through my own personal prayer time. We do this corporately as well. There's a a group of us every Thursday that meet just down the hall in the commons and we get after the Lord together. We pray, we bring our requests to him, we wait on him, we actively seek his heart. That's some of what it looks like to seek the Lord and to wait on him because if he is steadfast and merciful and faithful and lovely, like Chapter 3 has packed in all these attributes. If those things are true about God, then I want more of him and more from him. Seriously, I, I want more of that because I want some perspective. I want some hope in the middle of my struggle. I want some encouragement to my soul in the moments that are just so difficult. And so I wonder, do you actively wait on the Lord? Do you seek him daily? Is there a rhythm in your life? You want some perspective as you lament and turn your sorrow to the Lord? Well, you've got to seek his heart first. 
And I'll say this because verse 31 tells us that the Lord will respond out of his goodness. Look at 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now it's true, you cannot gloss over it. God did indeed bring judgment on his people. Terrible things happened to them because of their unfaithfulness, their sin, their disobedience. Their plight was terrible, but it was temporary. It wasn't forever. And why? Because we've seen earlier in this chapter, and we see elsewhere, that the steadfast love of the Lord endures. God Almighty had this covenantal love for his people that was enduringly abundant, enduringly faithful, And there would come a time that a faithful remnant would leave Babylon and return to the promised land. And they would experience his compassionate love and he would revive his people again. If you want some encouragement this week, encouragement, go to the book of Ezra. That'd be a great study for yourself after finishing up Lamentations is to see the fulfillment of the promise of the people coming back into Judah. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful reminder of God keeping his promises. Some months ago, I began reading this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And in it, he unpacks and he demonstrates the heart of Jesus towards sufferers and sinners. Anybody else in that category besides me? Suffering and sinning. This was a beautiful and hope-filled read. It left me longing for more of my Savior. I commend it to you. And little did I know when I read this months ago that I would be preaching from the very chapter and verse that I am this morning. In God's sovereignty, I returned back to chapter 15 this week because I said, wait a minute, I just read about this. And so I um, appreciate, one of the aha moments I appreciated in reading this book was just God's sovereignty and how he even structured and, and had this book put together, the book of Lamentations, that is. And so Ortland describes Lamentations as five ornately structured poems that reflect extreme literary care. So hang on, stick with me, a little nerdy. I'm a word person, so this is really cool to me. But chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, we've covered this a little bit in the last few weeks. 1, 2, 4, and 5, those are the outside chapters, right? 22 verses each. The middle chapter, where we are this morning, has three times that. It's 66 verses. And the exact middle of the book, of the entire book of Lamentations, is 333, where it says, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So what does this pinnacle and pivotal verse tell us about the heart of God? How can it encourage us today? Well, Ortland writes this. I'll put it up on the screen. The implicit... Gotta get to the right page here. The implicit premise in this verse... There there is an implicit premise and an explicit statement. The implicit premise is that God is indeed the one who afflicts. The explicit statement is that he does not do it from his heart. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He is sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. It's true, you can't gloss over it. God does indeed bring affliction. 
and difficulty out of his divine sovereignty, out of his holiness. This is a story that's just on repeat time and time again as you read through the pages of Scripture. It's just over and over again. And if you'll be honest with yourself, it's probably true in your own life that there is some difficulty and some affliction that you walk through out of God's divine sovereignty and his holiness. But his heart for you is mercy. That's his heart for mercy and for restoration. And how do we know this? Look at Jeremiah 32. If indeed Lamentations was written by Jeremiah the prophet, then he writes elsewhere, and I won't read it all, but he's saying, I'm going to gather my people from the nations where I sent them in my anger. I'm going to gather them back, and I will make them dwell in safety, back in Jerusalem, back in their land. And he says, I will rejoice in doing them good, verse 41. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And God doesn't afflict from his heart because it's one of mercy. It's not his heart to grieve. It's not his heart to afflict us, but rather to rejoice over them, to show his goodness, to show them his kindness with his whole heart and his whole soul. You want to know the heart and the soul of God? Mercy. Joy. So my encouragement this morning is wait for him. Seek him. Hope in him. Yes, on your mountaintop, I want you to revel. Just drink in the Lord's goodness and his kindness to you on your mountaintop experience. But when you find yourself in the valley of discouragement, maybe it's the valley of discipline, know that God's heart for you is also mercy and lean into that. Receive that. Remember the heart of God for you and then the author tells us to turn our cry to the Lord. Now remember, Lamentations is not just a history lesson. It's not just a record of what happened and who and when and how. It's poetry, which means it's written by a person under the inspiration of God's Spirit. It was a personal account, not just an encyclopedic account. And so the author is writing out of his own personal experience and also on behalf of the nation. That's what prophets did. They were mouthpieces for, for God or mouthpieces on behalf of the nation. And if you'll remember anything about prophets, they didn't always have a great relationship with the nation. They were calling people out of their sin. They were pointing out some things that are pretty ugly and people, la, 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 they don't want to hear it. So they heaped on a lot of oppression, a lot of injustice against Jeremiah personally and they kind of wanted him dead. And so he's writing this both out of his own experience of, of, of oppression and injustice by his own people, but he's also writing this on behalf of the nation. It's been written, I found this in a commentary though, that if, a, if the poet could expect deliverance from the Lord, that is his own circumstances, it may be that the people could too. So this is one of those moments where in the interest of time, I am going to jump some verses with the encouragement that you not gloss over them on your own time because the author is going to instruct, or he's going to describe his prayer of how he cries out to the Lord and that's an instruction for us as well. So we're going to pick up verse 55 and work through some of these verses. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. So we know from this verse that God has a name. It's the Lord, which means the Almighty, Jehovah. 
And we know because of the pages of Scripture, we know about him. We know about his personal name. We know what his character is like. We know what he's done. We know that he is powerful, that there is no one like him. And so the takeaway for us is go to him. He's mighty. He's the one who's able to deliver you from whatever you're experiencing. Don't just talk about him to people. Talk to him. Because he hears. Look at verse 56. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for help. The Lord hears the cries from his people. His ears are not closed, so take your request to him. Lay it before him with confidence that he hears. We read earlier in Romans 12 that we're instructed to be constant in prayer. I encourage you, maybe it's this week, but sometime dig into Matthew 7, dig into, Ro- uh, dig into Luke 11. Jesus describes this metaphor of asking and seeking and knocking. And so understand what that means. Understand what it looks like for you. Go to him. Look at this next encouragement from 57. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. So the Lord draws near and he removes fear. And it is telling that the only recorded words that God spoke in the entire book are here. And what are the three words? Do not fear. What comfort and encouragement for the prophet as he was writing this, he penned this, but also for us. Think of the tenderness of a parent. If Audrey or Jack cries in the middle of the night, is scared, Allie or I get up. Usually it's Allie because I'm in the depths of sleep, but she, she's up like a mom and she, she goes in and, and what? We're trying to comfort them. We're trying to allay their fears and to help them to go back to sleep. And you know, that is the posture of our Heavenly Father. There were some nights early on in the pandemic, I'll be honest with you, I had a hard time falling asleep. And if I woke up in the night, I just played out all these scenarios in my mind. Anxiousness, fear. You think that helps somebody sleep? I tried essential oils on the bottom of my feet and I mean, just whatever I could. And you know what I turned to? I turned to reciting the truth of scripture. I turned to praying. And you know what's true? The Lord drew near to me and he gave me peace. He removed my fear. Verse 58, the author goes on to say, You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me. O Lord, judge my cause. So he's using some legal terminology here. The, The term take up my cause can be interpreted as some type of a lawsuit or a legal process that you're walking through. And the Lord stepped into it on his behalf. And what was the verdict? Redemption. That's why he writes, you have redeemed my life. So God Almighty stepped in and he prevailed. He claimed the prophet's life as his own. And I wonder, have you been wronged against? Maybe it's a legal thing. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Have you been wronged against? Do you see injustice that has happened toward you? It's legit. My encouragement this morning is to lay it first before God. First and foremost, you lay it before God. Because not only does he have the heart toward you, but he also has the ability to change things. And then verse 60, you have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. 
The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. Again, the Lord sees all. He doesn't turn a blind eye to difficulty. He doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice. It's not lost on him. And if you're experiencing this all the day long, like this poet was, that's exhausting. You are going to run out of steam. You are going to lose hope and faith. And so give it to him. Again, Romans 12 reminds us to be persevering in our trials, to keep going, to be patient and faithful and fervent. But you know, patience is hard, isn't it? I mean, I have a totally different timetable than the Lord. Woo! Big time different. I'm an achiever, I'm a doer, I like to check the box, and it can be paralyzing, it can be agonizing when I feel like I'm in a position when I can do nothing. But as we remember God's heart, as we carry our cry to him, we actually do something. We shift into gear remembering that we can wait on the Lord. We can expect him to move, and so we wait on him to carry out justice. Now we skipped over verse 26. I want to jump back and hit that one verse and then we'll jump to the very last few. 26 says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then here's some encouragement from 64. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will gather, excuse me, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Hmm. There's the instruction to wait again and to wait quietly. Now, does that mean silently? Well, not necessarily. Although, as I talked about earlier, I know I need to quiet my, my mind. I need to live a little bit more simply, simply and carve out some time so that I can hear. But it doesn't necessarily always mean silent. What's uh, intent in here in the Hebrew is that it's the idea of rest. There is good and silent rest in the Lord. Now remember, our pattern is what is true about God and what to do. And so as we remember his goodness, as we remember his heart for us, as we remember all of those things that he is ready to move on behalf of his people, we're not clicking it off in resignation and passivity. Remember, we've just read all these verses where he continues to bring out all of these things. Hey, Lord, this happened to me. This happened to me. This is going on. So he's continually reminding the Lord about all of these things. But he is still saying we wait quietly. I found this this week. Maybe it will be helpful to you. But he said uh, it was written that as the author contemplated the character of God, He realized that the best thing that he and his people could do was to wait patiently and silently for the Lord to work and accomplish his will in his time. God wants to, and he will address vengeance. He will address, excuse me, he will address injustice with his own vengeance. If we had continued reading in Romans 12, it's quoting the Old Testament saying, don't you do it, wait on the Lord, he will avenge for you. And does Babylon exist anymore? Anybody talk to Nebuchadnezzar lately? Uh Uh-uh. God brought out his judgment upon that nation 
And injustice happens both corporately and personally. And we've already talked about what happened to them and carrying them off to Babylon. I mean, that happened to the entire nation. And also the, the poet experienced it personally. And maybe you'll see things differently today than I do, but candidly, not a lot has changed in our world since 587 B.C. And it's because the human heart is sinful. With every sunrise that comes, with every sunset that comes, there is oppression, there is injustice. It happens. We look out for number one. We take advantage of other people. We think we're a better God than God. We reject our maker. On and on and on again because of sin. And the longer that I'm alive, and the longer that I am changed by God's Spirit, I have eyes to recognize injustice. I have eyes to recognize oppression. And that is actually a mark of God's people. It should grieve us when we see oppression and injustice. It should move us to pray and to act and to cry and to yearn for God to change it. Because he will. He's told us that he will respond to that. And it's bad what happened to the Jews in 587 B.C. Can't gloss over that. It's terrible. But throughout history, there have been horrific instances of oppression and injustice on a large scale. I mean, think of the atrocities of World War II and the people who were wrongfully killed or treated differently. You think about genocide and the elimination of people groups and tribes across every inhabited continent the world over. You think about our own dark history in America when it comes to slavery and segregation and how people have been treated. I think about the injustice or the oppression against the unborn. There's a host of other things that are true today that continue to play themselves out that are examples of injustice. But injustice is also experienced personally. You may be wronged by someone that you don't know, a stranger. You for sure will be wronged by someone that you do know. But it's personal, it hurts, doesn't it? You reel from it. And even as you reel, you do it to other people. You gotta look in the mirror. You're acting against other people, taking advantage of them, even as they do it to you. This is just the story of human nature, knowing and unknowing. But let me, let me just call your attention to the fact that the most poignant instance of injustice of all time, past, present, future, the cross. On the cross, the wrath of God was poured out not on those who commit acts of injustice, not on those who reject God, and reject other people, but the full and fierce fury of God's anger was poured out on the only one who has never acted unjustly toward another, the only one who lived perfectly and sinlessly, and that is Jesus, the Son of God. So as I wrap up this morning, a couple points of application. If we were to sit down 
at a coffee shop together over a nice coffee. It's hot out now. This is what we would talk about. This is what I would share from my heart to yours. So first, for those of us who have been saved because we believe in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we see that as our freedom. Well, God has addressed injustice fully and finally on the cross. That the bond of sin has been broken, doesn't have power over us anymore. We have a new name, and it's under Jesus' name that we live. And so therefore, we live as Romans 12 instructs us. We live in peace and in love, in harmony, in humility, and we align our hearts and our lives to the gospel, to the way of Jesus. And we put our hope, boy, do we put our hope in the fact that one day sin will be rolled back. The effects of sin and oppression on the large scale of our world will one day be no more. We read that in Revelation. And we will then live literally as we were meant to live, as life itself was created. What a beautiful thing to put your hope in. But in the meantime, here we are. Our hearts are broken, our world is broken. We experience pain, sadness, we lament. Did you know it's a gift to lament? It is, it's a gift to lament. When you think about it as the definition of turning to God and giving it to him and trusting him, it's a gift. Otherwise, we'd be riddled by anger all the time. We'd be riddled by depression or we just turn off our mind or, or whatever natural emotion your flesh feels. That is what would consume us. But we've learned that there is a gift in lamenting. And so I wonder, have you taken your cry to God? Have you taken your cry before the one who is almighty, who can change, who wants to move on your behalf? His ear is open. What about weeping with those who weep? Who's on your team? That Zoom call was so helpful to me. Just a total shot in the arm to remind me. I've got people. These are my people. These are my people. They speak words of life and truth and perspective to me. And I wonder, are you in your own head sometimes in your low moments when you're gripped with fear and you're not viewing yourself right? You're not viewing your situation. You're not viewing God right, maybe? Sometimes you just need a hug. Need a little spiritual encouragement. Sometimes you also might just need a kick in the pants spiritually. And it's your people who can do that. Church, we need each other. Seriously, we do. Oh, it's so cute. They're all wearing the same shirt today. No, this is a reminder. I love my church. Not the building, like the air conditioning. It's great. Comfy. But I love my church. It's the people. And we need each other. We need the people who are seated around us. And you know, we even need the people who are not seated around us. That's why Pastor Jacob talked at the beginning about reaching out. I'll say it a little bit more strongly. It's easy to send a text to somebody and say, hey, I've been thinking about you. Pick up the phone and call them. You're already liking all their stuff on social media. You know what's going on in their life. Call them and speak words of life and truth into them. Say, hey, you feel a little disconnected. 
A lot has changed in 15 months, hasn't it? Some really good, some really tragic. We have clarity, more clarity, over the last 15 months about our role, our obligation to build you up to maturity in faith, which Paul writes about in Colossians 1.28. Him, that's Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And you know, there is a way to, to warn and to teach in love and in grace. But we're here to proclaim Jesus, not what itching ears want to hear, not to live our best life, not to fit our narrative of the world and how we view ourselves in God. We're here to proclaim Jesus, and I think we might need to speak words of truth and life into some people who haven't been connected, who have lost it, who have just, eh, it's kind of nice to sleep in on a Sunday. I've got more time, I've got more money. This is why we have tackled the idea of lament, is because we have to grow in maturity. We have to know how to face difficult circumstances. We have to know about God and what's true about him and how we're supposed to respond. We've got to do this for each other. We have to demonstrate the life that is dependent and active in our faith until the end, until he calls us home. Secondly, for those here or listening online, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You don't consider yourself a Christian. You haven't believed in Jesus' life and work to save you from your sin, your brokenness, and your pain. Listen, maybe as we've looked at this ancient text, it's true. Maybe it resonates in your heart. Maybe um, your mind is just flooded with some examples of some tender and broken places in your own heart, your own life. Maybe you're just like so tired of the craziness that's happening in our world today, the oppression that happens. Maybe it's so exhausting to you. And you know what? If you're honest with yourself, you probably feel that there's no escaping it. Like, it doesn't go away. It doesn't get better in your own heart or in our world. You can't turn it off. We're good at masking. We're good at suppressing. We're good at emptying our minds and meditating. We'll be in a better place. We're good at leaning into work more, play more, just buy this thing. We're good at using relationships for this, to try to fill the void that's in our heart and in our life. And maybe you've tried all these things, but let me tell you the truth. The only way to address injustice, the only way to truly lament injustice is to look to Jesus. Jesus, though God, though uncreated, became human. He walked not in Sperry's, but he walked in our shoes. He, he walked, he understood the way that it is to be human. He experienced the highs of joy and the lows of tribulation. He knew what it was like to be oppressed, to be wronged, to be talked about. He truly is the only one who can weep with those who weep. He knows. The amazing truth is that he did it sinlessly, perfectly. You catch me in a moment and I'll respond pretty ugly. Done it before. But Jesus, never. Never. He did it perfectly, sinlessly. And that is why we put our hope in the fact that he is the answer to the injustice. 
He was oppressed for us on the cross. He literally died so that we would have life. And you know, that is the freedom. Do you ever want to just take a a sigh, a deep breath in your soul? It's the way of Jesus. He is good. He is gentle to sinners. And he is inviting you to this way of life. Jesus, thank you for the truth about who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that even what we watched with Jackson demonstrates that you bring what is dead spiritually to life. And that we got to celebrate, we got to to join in that picture of what you have done in his heart. Thank you for my brother who after our first service said, I thought I knew who God was, but I need to know who this Jesus is. Thank you for a new life that responded to your Holy Spirit and that was saved and born again this morning. Man, Father, I am am just so pumped up that your Spirit is at work that we see people here this morning who we haven't seen for a long time, that we have seen people come to our church over these last number of weeks. We've seen more and more faces, and it's not for numbers. We want to yield ourselves to be faithful, to respond to people the way Jesus would, to invite them into community and spiritual family, to walk with them, to help them to experience peace and freedom to know how to work through the joys and the trials of life. So would you keep doing that today? Would you help us to know your heart? Would you help us to turn to you, express our cry, our grief, to lament, and then to wait on you, to wait actively? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work for us. I pray this in his beautiful name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.